0: Alan Chuse is the critic for NPR's All Things Considered. His latest collection of travel essays is A Trance After Breakfast. His latest novel, now out in trade paperback, is To Catch the Lightning. Thank you for joining me, Alan.
1: Again, my pleasure, Rick.
0: Well, we have a very interesting uh, selection of uh, books here.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I was thinking we could go from worst to best.
0: (laughs) Okay, then that means I guess we start with the lacuna.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, I rarely... Never finish a novel that somebody's paying me to write about. But I'm only still at page two seventy. I have to confess because you know she's uh, you know a very uh, lovely writer from time to time. But boy, there's just something that happens in this book. It's you know there's lovely prose here and there, and um, but it's a concept novel and it's absolutely dull. And it's got some real clunky prose, along with the beautiful prose. So, you know, it's, it's about this kind of uh, somebody called him a zelig like character uh, named Harrison, Harrison Shepherd, who is uh, born to a Mexican mother, an American father, and he's raised on this island off the, the coast in southern Mexico. And, and uh, while his mother is out looking for a rich uh, husband, Makes acquaintance of Frida Kahlo and gets invited into the Kahlo household. You know, the, the, and and, uh, and is there when Trotsky moves in and is, and Trotsky's murdered. And then he goes back to the states. And uh, this is halfway through the book. And then <laughs> apparently he gets involved with the McCarthy hearings. Uh, so he's there for great events of our time, great uh, left-wing political events. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I just find the book absolutely just dull for all of the, the miraculous material, and I'm not exactly sure why, um,
0: you know, I was talking with a writer named Tim Powers, mm-hmm. and he said that whenever he starts to write his novels, one of the things, if he ever detects even the hint of an agenda, he just abandons that idea immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really what's the problem with this novel. its It's got this agenda, and it, and if you're sympathetic to the agenda, it's going to make you more sympathetic to the novel, and you might actually enjoy it more. Yeah. But if you're just trying to read this as a novel, it, it does kind of... Uh, clunk and chunk along. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's chunks that aren't really necessarily threaded together by a human experience that we really care yeah. about. Yeah, and I think
1: one of the problems is the, the, the device that she uses is told mostly in, in notebooks. And, uh, and, and that, which is interesting, because when we talk about the Kutseya, some of that is also present, but it has a different effect. But a lot of the notebook stuff, his notebooks, are just kind of bland, um, despite these epical events, I mean, the murder of Trotsky, my God, you know that's one of the most amazing events of the twentieth century of twentieth century political history, and, uh, and he make, and she manages too. to make it seem dull.
0: Well, I think this is a problem, too, when you're using a quote, Zelig like character. Yeah. Somebody who tends to disappear in the background in history will also tend to disappear in the reader's memory and not be a compelling character. Yeah, well, there's or a the
1: lacuna, right? Yeah. Hiatus or absence. Yes. But the real lacuna is plot. Passion, too. <laughs> yeah. Passion. Yeah. It just doesn't seem passionate enough. And, you know, I, frankly, I've never been an admirer of her work. Her big success of some of the last decade was this thing set in the Congo Congo I guess Poisonwood Bible mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and everybody said they loved it they, people raved about it and uh, I didn't like it at all mm. and got some hate mail because I didn't like it but well, so,
0: enough uh, people around me read it I felt that I didn't have to I could just absorb <laughs> it <through the> ethers. <laughs> and I, I in retrospect I think I'm glad I did
1: well maybe we should move on to
0: something well let's talk a little bit uh, uh, about uh, well where do you rate the the next two novels do we want to go to plus by Charlie
1: Houston yeah I, I I really liked it a lot
0: I'm uh, a Houston fan I'll tell you I've been reading them since the get-go
1: really well I'm a Houston virgin so, <laughs> um, it's it's a terrific uh, uh, we call it science fiction it's kind of mm-hmm. future yeah. future Future, what do we call it?
0: Uh, he calls it science speculative fiction. fiction. Yeah, it's, it's science fiction. It's set in the near future. It it had posits, you know, developments both societal and scientific and ecological. All yeah. three kind of wound together very nicely.
1: Yeah, and it's got a kind of complicated uh, means of delivery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, when you get to the very end, you know, you discover who's been writing the, this as a novel all along. <laughs> but it all works. It's it all works beautifully. It's you know this this in which this uh, epidemic of uh, insomnia is ravaging uh, the world. And this one, he sets this in uh, in uh, L.A. This okay. is where he
0: lives. And he he's really has a great sense for, for the L.A. landscape, I think. Yeah. That really helps a lot.
1: Yeah, I like the scenes where Beverly Hills is surrounded by uh, by uh, armed guards and walls and fences and the Sleepless they're out there rioting in the streets, and inside Beverly Hills, there are all these people playing tennis on the lawns and having debutante parties and so I mean it's really a wonderful kind of apocalyptic scene um, so I found it really kind of kind of exciting to read about this uh this I mean compared to Margaret Atwood's plague mm-hmm. in the year of the flood, I thought this is much more successful um but I guess you know he's not going to have the following. Well he actually book that she had
0: with hers. He actually has a pretty big following. He's, he? Yeah. he he's well known. He came out with uh, three mysteries uh-huh. that were very funny. And you can see one of the things I was afraid of when he told me he was writing a science fiction novel near future, mm-hmm. I thought it would be, um, I guess, to put for lack of a better term, kind of a downer and dower. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that Houston excels at, and there's there's quite a bit of that in here, is he's great at Fun, funny dialogue, I mean, and snappy kind of uh, almost Elmore uh, Leonard-style repartee between his characters. You
1: know, what actually, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was good. What really impressed me, Mm -hmm. well, two things. One was the the, uh, description of the shootouts that occur Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. and then. Uh, Very well done. I mean, it's really hard to write that kind of physical... Yeah, to
0: create that it. scene of action and get put that in the reader's mind so he can really grab it. That's tough, and he does a good job. Yeah, he it. does it very well.
1: Uh, great job with it. And the other is is the way he he's designed the thing, the architecture of the thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're reading along about this story of uh, of this L.A. cop in the in the somewhat near future, uh, and his name is Parker Haas. and then. Then another narrator enters, and you're not sure who it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether it's Haas' alter ego or it's another person or or is it a you know something somebody's dreaming or but i mean and this other narrator really begins to take charge in, in a powerful way, and the back and forth between what so it's really a, a kind of quest novel Haas is trying to find out who's who is uh selling. This uh, antidote to the insomnia plague on the black market, and uh this other narrator is trying to uh, find Haas because Haas has some evidence that uh this someone who's hired this other guy wants so it's a it's a kind of double tracking tracking novel
0: yeah it's, pretty, it's quite sophisticated i think for a novel that you might think of as genre fiction
1: yeah you know, absolutely. It- I would agree with that entirely.
0: And he does it with a light touch. He's not uh, heavy-handed about it. I mean, even though I think he deals addresses in a certain sense some of the same issues that uh, uh, King Solver does, mm-hmm. he does it in a manner that's exciting, lively, and engaging. Mm-hmm. With a character who's exciting, lively, and engaging.
1: Yeah, you know that's right. I mean, it, one of the one of the most important things in a novel like this, and in the King Solver is for the reader to actually believe that there's all this other stuff going on yeah. behind the main action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the case of King Solver, you know, most of 20th century history. Right, right. And uh and it's kind of dead on arrival whereas Houston has uh, riots in the streets and all these insomniacs uh staying up all night. Uh, the movie industry is flourishing because people want to go to all-night theaters. I mean, <laughs> wonderful touches, and and you accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this is a, a novel uh, definitely worth uh, latching on to.
0: And now let's ascend to the rarefied heights of a summertime.
1: Yeah. Um, the only thing I didn't understand about it was the title. But, <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, could say, is... Uh, little uh, anti-biographical masterpiece. I mean, it's it's a novel about a biographer's interviews of people who knew Kutseya when he was alive because the, the assumption of the book is he's died and this biographer's trying to write a book about him. And he interviews uh, four or five major people in Kutseya's life, uh, two of whom are women, one a cousin and another... Uh, a Brazilian dancer, whose daughter she uh, could say is teaching at this girls' school in Cape Town, uh, or it did in the seventies, I guess. and uh, it's it's really quite something in that he he treats uh, contemporary life, or what was contemporary in the seventies when the book supposedly takes place, in in a very deep feeling way, for the first time in in my knowledge of his work, most of of the time he's writing these very powerful, uh, quasi-allegorical novels about politics in in South Africa, and uh, this book is a serious attempt at creating a realistic picture of a man's life, a writer's life, uh, in in a contemporary setting, Uh,
0: and it happens to be
1: the writer himself, right?
0: I just think it was one of the most entertainingly sophisticated Mm -hmm. literary Mobius strips I have ever encountered. And a lot of the pleasure, for me at least in this book, comes from reading it and trying to keep a hold of how everything is related, where you are, and Mm -hmm. whose point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that this whole act really causes you as a reader to reflect on the process of reading the process of writing in a way that's uh, again very very engaging and rooted in this kind of realistic picture of day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's a it's a, an amazing uh, mixture of uh Borges and uh, <laughs> and whom? <laughs> uh
0: I, I Balzac?
1: <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, there you go. Um uh, and in, in the portrait that could say ama- has his biographer construct by means of these interviews of himself is uh, very odd and distinctive because
0: not flattering.
1: In, there is nothing flattering <laughs> about the writing. You know, he's port- he, the, these people portray him. Even even though this French woman who was his lover for a time portray him and as this. Uh, distant, kind of cold fish, uh, who has no real connection to any human being. He's, you know, rejected his family, uh, and he's caring for his uh, aging, ailing father.
0: And yet he's so connected to humanity as a whole, he's able to create these compelling portraits of human beings. I know. And as you read this, you're kind of just caught in this uh, contradiction in terms.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I spent three days in his company. Uh, oh, fifteen years ago, when we were on an uh, international prize jury uh, out of the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and he manages to keep the most distance from anybody that he's with th- than you know, short of being dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what can I say? You read this book and you think this is extraordinary I want to read everything this man has written but I never want to make love to him
0: <laughs> and I don't know if I even want to have dinner with
1: him well I've had dinner with him oh. you know he's just utter he is like the world's greatest poker faced poker player I mean just he keeps just enough distance so you think he's not dead
0: it, the the prose in this is particularly amazing. When, mm-hmm. when you think of how carefully considered every word has to be, how carefully considered every perception has to be, we have perceptions of perceptions of perceptions of perceptions. Mm-hmm. It's It really is a, a literary hall of mirrors.
1: Yeah, but and it's funny, The it's also a kind of, uh, and this is very surprising, it's kind of a love poem to uh, to uh, South Africa. I mean, the landscape. I mean, there's this one point. Let me read this little point where the, his cousin is talking, with whom he's stranded out in the middle of the of the uh, Karoo, this desolate uh, region uh, of South Africa. And, and she says, uh, if anything has held them, the two of them together over the years, it's this: the landscape. Taken over her heart. When she dies and is buried, she will dissolve into this earth and so naturally it will be as if she never had a human life. He's talking, you know. He, this is Kuzeya describing his cousin's presentation of herself to this uh, biographer. There's that many screens between him and this emotional relation link to the landscape, but it, it, it's beautiful. I think that uh, the Nouvelled Neu- Mountains that they're looking at, uh, are something that he loves to.
0: It's a really interesting, uh, and you know, kind of. A, it's amazing how involving it is for how uninvolved the the object of its affection or non affection
1: is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's another uh, at the end of this interview that the bio- this, the the presumptive biographer does with the French woman with whom he taught uh, at a Cape Town University uh, course in African literature. And, and he asked her, uh, "What the interviewer says, what's your estimation of his books? And she, she's been fighting him all along saying, Just a man, a man of his time, talented, maybe even gifted, but frankly not a giant. I'm sorry if I disappoint you. Um, and she says, nowhere, reading his novel, Disgrace, or his, she says, I lost interest. In general, she says, I'd say his work lacks ambition. The control of the elements is too tight. Nowhere do you get a feeling of a writer deforming his medium in order to say what has never been said before, which is to me the mark of great writing. Too cool, too neat, I would say. Too easy, too lacking in passion. That's all. And in this book, he turns that statement on its head.
0: Yeah, that's uh, uh, the fact that he can have this character write this statement is demonstration that the statement itself is false. Yeah. And that's a remarkable. Anyway, this is something
1: uh, everybody who's interested in, uh, the way not just writers present themselves to the world, but which anybody presents him or herself to the world should read this. It's a w- wonderful novel. It's so sly and seeming casual.
0: I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. He's a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. This week we spoke about Summertime by J.M. Kotseya, Sleepless by Charlie Houston, and The Lacuna by Barbara King Thank you for joining me, Alan.
1: Great pleasure, Rick. Talk to you next month.